Welcome to City on a Hill's podcast. This week's podcast can be downloaded on iTunes or our media library at chccny.com. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters from different mothers. We, uh, we are going to show you a Mother's Day clip. My brother already alluded, alluded to the fact that it is Mother's Day, but we want to honor all of you in this place for all that you do. So look up on the side screens, please. go to church with jelly all over our face, can we? Hmm? Oh my, oh my goodness. What are you doing with that snake? You go put that snake back in the hole right now. That's it, buddy. Yeah. Way to go. All right, buddy. Hey. Oh, oh, buddy. You okay? You all right? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord. Hey, Mom. Mommy needs just a minute. Please. Hey, Mom. I think you look pretty no matter what. Even when your hair looks really weird. Beth to marry me. Well, what'd she say? 
Welcome to the family. I'm so happy for you. Hey, Mom. Where's that grandbaby? Nice to see you. Oh. Yeah, nice to see you, too. Oh, it's okay. Oh, it's okay. You did great. What's that? The children. You did really great. I always knew you'd be a good dad. But you did really. Mom, what are you doing? <laughs> of course you are. Come sit with me. You know, I was thinking just the other day about what a wonderful mom you are. I mean, God, God really blessed me with a great lady. You're... You're my mom. You've always been there for me. <laughs> Even when I didn't want you to be. <laughs> and nobody ever believed in me like you do. Thank you. I love you, Mom. And I love you, son. Pass the Kleenex box around. Everybody grab a tissue. It's beautiful, right? Really well done. Reminds me of a, um, a story I read in a book some time ago. See, there's a professor. She's a uh, public speaking. She has a public speaking course. And she's a professor down south at a small college. And the first day of that class, every semester, she does the same thing. And the students come in, and they're staring at her. And she tells all of them, I want you to pull out a piece of paper. And I want you to divide it into three smaller pieces, just like this. The kids are like, all right. They take the piece of paper out. They fold it up. And she says she can tell what type of student or what type of person every kid is. You know, the type A personality. The creases have to be perfect. You know, everything has to be just so. And she says, okay, here's what you're going to do. You're going to rip the three pieces apart. On the first piece of paper, I want you to draw a, you know, a bug, something that you would never want crawling up your leg, a nasty creature, an arachnid or whatever. Kids are like, okay. She says, on the second piece of paper, I want you to draw something totally different. I want you to draw a food that you abhor, you hate Something that you just can't eat. You can't be around it. And she says, finally, on that third piece of paper, I want you to draw what you call your mom or that motherly figure in your life. She lets them go, and they're at, they're at their seats, and they're, you know, a lot of chatter, and they're, they're having fun. And she says, all right, all right, everybody done? She says, all right, take, everybody stand up, stand next to your desk, Take that first piece of paper. So they're holding the piece of paper. What, what are we going to do with this? She takes her piece of paper. She holds it up and it's a centipede. 
and she throws it on the ground, right? She throws it on the ground, and she starts stomping on that piece of paper. And with that, the whole class, every single student takes their piece of paper, and they throw it on the ground. And all you can hear is the sound of stomping in the room. Emotions are really high. All right, let's take the second piece of paper, she tells them. Second piece of paper. She has a beat on hers, and she's stomping on it. She says, there are Brussels sprouts on the ground. There's broccoli, all food that we should eat and you should love. It should be the Twinkies and stuff that people are drawing. But they're squashing the piece of paper. And with emotions really high, there's commotion in the room. She takes that third piece of paper, and on that third piece of paper for her, she has three letters, M-O-M, mom. And she throws her, on, her piece on the ground and she starts stomping on it. And with that, friends, there is absolute silence in the room. In 12 years of doing this exercise, there has never been one student to take their piece of paper that says mom, mommy, whatever that motherly figure is in their life, they cannot take their foot and stomp on that piece of paper. And she rolls right into the power of words. You see, words are more than just shapes. They are more than just letters and curves on a piece of paper. These words that we use have real life. And I'm here to tell you this morning... That if you are a mom in this room, there is, it's one of the most evocative words that we have in the English vocabulary. And I know for some of you sitting in here, you watch that video, you hear me talk about that little exercise that teacher does. And this is not an easy day for you. This is a hard day for you. But there's something about motherhood. Even if you didn't have a good mother, there's something that every kid in that classroom understands and they respect about what a mother is. It strikes deep into the human heart. Mom. And so if you're a mom, we would like you to stand in this place right now. We would like to honor you and I would like to pray over you. Please. Lord, Lord, I just pray over every mother in this room. Lord, every mother that stayed up late at night, they were serving on that late night shift. Lord, every mother, as we saw in that video in here, when there was a scraped knee, that they were right there. Lord, every mother in here that represents is, in a, is a picture of who you are, the mother God. Oh, Lord, I thank you for all that they have done in our lives, what they have imparted. Lord, how they've raised us, the wisdom that they've given us. Lord, I pray, though, especially for mothers, that this day is very difficult. Lord, I ask that you would just, you would cover their hearts. You would cover their minds. Lord, you would speak to them through others. And Lord, may they say, oh, I didn't have that in my life, but I know the kind of mother that I want to be for my kids. Lord, I speak to the mother in this place that is barren and does not have kids. And it's the desire of her heart to have kids. Lord, you still have not lost any power. You are still a miracle worker. Lord, and as we look at this story today, as we continue, Father, you did some wonderful, amazing, mighty things because that's just who you are. Thank you from the bottom of my heart, from my mom and every other mom in here, everybody else that showed me what a mom is truly supposed to do and be. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you. And it's with that, 
that we pick up in our series. You see, it wasn't on accident that I picked this series a couple of weeks ago. And if you weren't here last week, we are in the book of Ruth. If you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn there in the Old Testament. This is a wonderful story. Two of the three main characters in the Bible, even in this story, even though we're not there yet for one of them, they are incredible mothers. And as we get to the end, I'm going slow. I don't usually do this. And if you noticed last week, I went very slow through the text. And I was very glad to have some people say, you know what? I love the history. I love to learn. I'm gonna, if whatever your word tank is at today, I'm going to fill it. All right? I'm going to give you more word. We are going to look at one of the greatest romance novels ever written in the history of the world. Why? Because God is the greatest storyteller in the history of the world. And story is the language of the human heart. This is a story that reads like poetry and prose. It, it has every, everything that you could possibly want. It has redemption. It has grace. It has pain. So many wonderful things, so many things we look at and we say, wow, God, what are you going to do here? God turned something that seemingly is bad into something that is so wonderful. And just to catch you up as a little review, here's what happened. Here's what you missed in the first chapter. The main character, Ruth, she along with, she eventually is going to meet these people who are coming from where? Bethlehem. The beginning of the story, chapter 1, tells us that there is a famine in Bethlehem. And if you remember, I said to you, Bethlehem means house of bread. There is a famine at the beginning of the story in the house of bread. So Naomi and her husband Elimelech take their two sons, Malin and Killian, Wimpy and Frumpy, and they take them and they head on out where? To a place called Moab. Moab is not a hospitable place for an Israelite. They are so desperate that they leave their home and they go to this foreign territory. Israelites and Moabites do not get along. And then from there, when they're there, what happens? It's when Naomi's two boys, Malin and Killian, they wind up meeting two Moabite girls. And that's the one girl, Ruth, the name of the story. We meet Ruth and, and I want to say Oprah every time, Orpah. And we meet those two characters. But what happens so early in the first chapter of the story the father dies. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, dies. And then shortly after, her two sons die. You have Naomi with her two daughter-in-laws, Ruth and Orpah. And they are destitute. They are poor. They are impoverished. And they decide, they hear, Naomi hears, that God has visited the house of bread again, Bethlehem. And they travel back to Bethlehem. And that's where we left off at the end of that chapter with that incredible vow that Ruth makes to her mom, Naomi. And with that as the backdrop, let's pick back up at the end of chapter one. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to start there. And then we're going to walk through the second chapter. Starting in 122. That's what the writer tells us. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her who returned from the country of Moab. Now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. All right. The barley harvest is a big deal. It's called Shavat. Can everyone say that? One, two, three. Shavat. Shavat is something even today. This is really cool. Jewish people today, they sing the song of Ruth. 
When I was in, uh, taking a seminary class, I had to interview some leader from another faith. I chose, I chose a Jewish rabbi in Syosset. And this is one of the cool things that we were talking about. And he was telling me on the barley harvest, which is at the end of April, every year, they sing the whole song together. You ready? You want to do it? Some of you are saying, yes, that would take too long. Some of you would be like, let me get out of here. But isn't that pretty neat? That's what our Jewish brethren do. So that's where we are in the story. And then now let's, let's move on to the next chapter. But notice this again. Notice the contradiction. Look what the writer is saying. The beginning of the barley harvest. I told you the beginning of the chapter started out with a famine. It ends with a harvest. Ooh. That means that the God of the Old Testament is up to something. That means that which looks so dark and that God is not around. No, no, no. His invisible hand is there and he's working behind the scenes. You see, I said last week too that in this book you don't find any great miracles. You don't see any great fish. You don't see any burning bushes. But there is a God that is there. He is working behind the scenes just like he's working behind the scenes in your life. And the second chapter opens up. And look, look at the first word of the second chapter. There was a relative or the first begin, there was a relative of Naomi's husband, a man of great wealth, of the family of Elimelech. His name was Boaz. Okay. Bo is the man. You need to know Bo. Right? You have to know Bo today. When you walk out next week, I'm going, I'm not getting ahead. I was going to get into chapter three. Chapter three is really where it kind of gets PG-13. I just couldn't get there this week. But we have to talk. Let's stop and talk about this man. He doesn't, the, the writer is going out of sequence. He's introducing us this, he can't wait. He wants to tell us, oh my gosh, I have to talk about, but I just have to tell you who this guy is. His, his name, his name means a couple of things. It means, first of all, that it means he's a man of valor. It means that he's a man of war. It's the same Hebrew word that is used to describe David. It also means he is a man of wealth. He is a man of influence. He is a man of affluence. And the third thing, W, alliteration, war, wealth, wherewithal. Wherewithal. This man is proactive. If there is a problem, he's going to figure it out. But he is the dude of dudes. What do I mean by that? This kind of guy, doesn't, he doesn't wear clip-on ties. He doesn't, wear, he doesn't drink decaf coffee. He doesn't listen to the Spice Girls or Mariah Carey. He has never physically been in a Volkswagen Cabriolet. This guy is a man. You see what I'm talking about? This guy is a dude. He is somebody we should look at. We should revere. We should respect. We don't talk enough about Boaz. But Bo knows a lot. And here he is in the story. We're introduced to him. And it's mentioned out of sequence who he is. And I have to say this. Some of you women, I actually, you know, I kind of watched it a couple. The Bachelor, The Bachelor, The Show, The Bachelor, The Bachelorette. Megan watches it every time it's on. Um, makes me watch it, forces me. Tells me I have to watch it. If I love her, if I really love her, I'm going to watch the show. Somewhere in this story, and some of you, I'm going to tell you things that you've read the story a million times probably. Nowhere in the text does it say he's a handsome bachelor. The executives of the Bethlehem bachelor did not choose Boaz because he does it. The text does not say he was a good looking man. It doesn't say that at all. 
This is a man of character. This is a man of integrity. This is a man that everybody in the community respects. That's who Boaz is. And like a conductor lifting a baton opens up into this chapter. I can't wait to tell you about this guy, Boaz. He's an amazing character. You have to see who he is. And you also have to see something that's kind of strange. He's single, ladies. I don't know if he has a goiter on his neck or a head. I I don't know. We don't really know. But understand, taking you back thousands of years ago to this culture, you got married. You looked around. It wasn't about, we're so individualistic in Western society. Understand this. In, in that Eastern culture, it was about your family connections. This, he's an anomaly. He's an aberration. To not be married and to have money and to have land and to, to be, you know, be a man of integrity and valor, it's crazy that he's not married at this point in the story. And the writer wants us to know that. And the writer keeps telling us here in this story, talking about who Ruth is. He keeps saying, Ruth is a Moabitess. Ruth the Moabite. Ruth the Moabitess. The author is like kind of like, winking at us. Do you see the disparity between these two individuals? They're not from the same socioeconomic class. One is up here, very wealthy, and another one is down here. These two people don't ever get together. They're not supposed to marry each other. They're not supposed to date each other. They're never supposed to talk to each other. That's what the writer's trying to tell us here in the text. So here is this wonderful man, Boaz, and then look what happens. In 2-2, look what the writer tells us. So Ruth the Moabitess, again, there it is, constantly telling us, please see who she is, how comical this is, that this woman who is a foreigner, she is a pagan, she doesn't, well, she has converted to the God of Yahweh, but still everybody that's looking at her is like, who is this Moabitess? So Ruth the Moabitess says to Naomi, her mother-in-law again, Please let me go to the field and glean heads of grain after him in whose sight I may find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. All right, here's a little history. What are we talking about in gleaning? Gleaning is the ancient welfare system. It's really what it is. It's social services. It is food stamps. It is the homeless shelter. It is the soup kitchen. So if you're taking notes or you're looking at this, again, I'm, tell, I'm feeding you. You have to know this stuff. If we're going to do this, I'm not just going to tickle yours. I'm going to really teach you what's going on in the text. This is the social welfare system. She is going out and she is gleaning. This is what gleaning was like. You would have the men that were hired. So Boaz owns this great big field. He owns a lot of land. You would have hired men that would be there. They would have sickles in one hand and they would go up to the grain. These stalks of grain, they would grab them by the bottom and they would cut them. Once the grain was cut, they would just throw it behind them. You would then have hired women behind these men that would gather the bundles of of the grain and they would bundle it up and they would tie it together. Then behind the women, that's what we're talking about. If you were somebody that was gleaning in a field... You were a foreigner. You were an immigrant. You were the lowest of the low in that society. You were a widow or you were an orphan. And you were hoping for scraps on the ground. That's what gleaning is. So here is Ruth. And picture this. This is so dangerous. We miss this when we read the text. 
how dangerous this would have been for a foreigner, first of all, to leave her home, to leave Naomi's side. She doesn't know anybody. They don't like Moabites. She's heading out to a field. She doesn't know where she's going to go. She's trying to get work. She's trying to feed herself. When's the last time Ruth had a shower? When's the last time she had a meal? We don't know, but I can guarantee you her stomach is rumbling. She is starving. But she decides to head out because she is a tenacious woman. She doesn't care how dangerous it is. Did I tell you this? How often people would come home from gleaning without any food? Did I tell you that a lot of times women were, I know there were young children in the room, but they, they were raped. Many, many times women were raped. Naomi, who is an Israelite, sends her daughter-in-law out into the field to go glean, knowing what she is up against. That's what would happen. She knows, Ruth goes out, and she knows she probably is coming back home with a no food, and she's worried for her life. The text doesn't tell us that, but you have to read into it and reading all the commentaries and reading what the history, what the history tells us. That's what's going on here in this text. How dangerous this is for this woman to go out. But Ruth is not an ordinary woman. Oh, no, friends. She is the furthest thing from being ordinary. And she goes out at risk to herself. And you have to worry, too, as a gleaner, are other people going to push you out of the way? There are people that are just as poor and just as destitute as you are, and they don't care about you. Oh, welcome to Ruth's world. Thousands of years later. You want to trade places? I didn't think so. Kind of reminds me of another story of a woman. Let me take you back. Fast forward from there. The year is 1851. A lot of history teachers in the room. 1851, it's the Ohio Women's Rights Convention. And there is a speaker in the house that gets up spontaneously. You know what her name was? Sojourner Truth. How many of you have heard of the name? Sojourner Truth is a former slave. It's 1851. She's the only black woman to sue a white man and actually win. She's, well, she's the first one, I should say. So it's 1851, and she stands up. It's not planned, but she gives a speech there that is known, that is resounded throughout the rest of history, and it's called, Ain't I a Woman? This is before suffrage. This is before 1920 when women got the right to vote. This is a tenacious woman, a tall, angular woman, stands up, and she addresses the crowd. And here are some of the words that she says. That man over there says women need to be helped into carriages and lifted over ditches. Nobody ever helped me into carriages or over mud puddles. And ain't I a woman? Look at me. Look at my arm. I have plowed and planted and gathered into barns. And ain't I a woman? I could work as much as a man when I could get it and bear the lash as well. And ain't I a woman? I have borne 13 children and seen most all sold into slavery. And when I cried out with my mother's grief, none but Jesus heard me. And ain't I a woman? She is deriding, she is criticizing the thought, the notion in her day that what, a, what it takes to be a woman, what a woman really looks like. This is a woman that is tenacious. This is a woman that will go up against. She's a devout Christian. 
And she's a woman that says, Jesus, wherever you send me, I'm going to fight whatever battle you put me in. I'm not going to stand for the status quo in society. And if you put me out in the field, I'm going to work next to the men. And I'm going to work just as hard as those men are. I don't care who they are. How many of us have that kind of tenacity? Why do I bring her story up? Because this is what she and Ruth have the same thing in common. That tenacity and that perseverance. And I'm going to strive on. And I'm going to go after it. And it doesn't matter. And when, when Ruth arrives in Bethlehem, she faces an uphill battle as a worker in a field, as a gleaner. But she doesn't shrink back from what she's supposed to do. Ain't Ruth a woman? Oh, she is a woman. We focus so much on men. How about some of the great women in the Bible? Oh, yes, it is Mother's Day. You go, Ruth. You go, Sojourner Truth. You women should be clapping. (laughs) Serious. And here is Naomi at home. She sends her daughter-in-law out. Think about the anxiety and the stress that she is under. You mothers in here, let's talk about you again. It's your day. You remember what it was like when you had kids, or some of you, your kids are too young yet. You remember what it was like when they would go out and you had that pit in your stomach? Like, my mom never had this with me because I never went out and stayed out late. But I remember, I distinctly remember my two siblings, and especially the older one, John, John would love to go out and he'd come in at like two or three in the morning, right? And there, am I, I'm not lying. And the door would open up and this is, and some of you know, you did the same thing, mothers. And the door would open up and where was mom? She'd like, the door is right here. You'd open up the door and she'd be in the other room and you think you're in the clear, right? And you're going to hit that first stair and then it's like, hey, you're like, whoa, how did you know I was coming home right now? What, what are you doing? Why are you there? Because mom can't sleep. The anxiety that she feels. She can't go to bed until she knows that you're in your bed. Oh, the mom that works the midnight shift. Thank you, mothers, for all that you do. So that's what I see into this. She's looking at the clock. There is no real clock, but you get what I mean. And minutes stretch into hours. And the sun is about to set and she wonders. She waits. She thinks. She ponders. Is Ruth okay? Is my daughter-in-law going to make it? Am I ever going to eat again? Lord, is this Yahweh? Is this where I'm going to die? Right here in this place? I'm back in the house of bread? But it's not the end of the story. You go on to the next verse, 2, 3. Then she left Ruth and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And she just happened to come to the field of Boaz. And she just happened to come to the field of Boaz. The writer again is laughing, winking at us. Do you see this? She just happened to come from Moab and father, follow her mother-in-law. She just happened to come with Naomi. She just happens to wind up in Bethlehem again. And she just happens to come and wind up in the field of this guy Boaz who just happens to be single and he just happens to be wealthy. Nothing just happens. Nothing just happens in your life. 
God is at work. There is no such thing as coincidence. There is no such thing as chance. I know a lot about providence, but not coincidence and not chance. There is a God who is behind the scenes and he knows exactly what your name is and he knows exactly where you are and everything that has happened to you in your life has happened for a reason. And we talked a couple of weeks ago, Romans 8, 28, he's going to work all things for good in the totality of your life. Do you believe that? So she just happens to come to the field of Boaz, who was of the family of Elimelech. Gosh, I love teaching this stuff. There are some things I was, I just couldn't wait to come here this morning and teach this. And you're like, just get on with it. Moving to the next verse there. Look what it says in 2.4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered him. The Lord bless you. How many of you will walk into work tomorrow? (laughs) And you will fly out of that cubicle or whatever you work in like a mole out of a hole. And you will say this to your boss or your boss will say this to you. God bless you. How are you? How was your mother's day? I don't think that's going to be the case tomorrow for many of you. I don't think this is the kind of. Yes, Mr. CEO. Let's sing together. Doesn't happen. You have to see what got Ruth's attention in the story. Again, we have the wrong picture of how this love story goes. You do. I know you do because I did. This love story is, this is not love at first sight. Do you know what gets Ruth's attention? That she realizes she stops in her tracks. This is public. She realizes that this man really loves God and she sees how he's treating his workers. And she's like, wow, I have found a place of sanctuary where I can come. That's what's going on here. Isn't that pretty amazing? It's not, oh my gosh, my ring size is eight. And uh, that's not what's going on here. She's not, no, she has the utmost respect for the way he rolls on the scene. And he gets out of that Escalade and he rolls up to her and he starts talking to her. She is, in a little bit, when you see that, she is taken by this man's character. She's taken by the way he carries himself. That's why I love Bo. Bo knows business. Bo knows a lot. <laughs> <laughs> and then in 2.5, this is kind of, I, I just, I, there's so much I find funny in this. There's so much I find beautiful. 2.5, then Boaz said to his servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Whose young woman is this? Very observant. As he walks over, he looks and he sees a woman in the field that he has never seen there before. Now, another thing I have to know, I want you to notice, I want you to be cognizant of as you're looking at this text. We have this picture of Ruth and I looked at, you know, you see some movies and I saw pictures online. I'm Googling things and I'm like, this is nonsense. They have Ruth dressed like, like this beautiful little dress and her hair is put up like she has makeup on. The woman is pitted out. She hasn't had a shower in we don't know how long. She is funkified. There is a smell that is emanating from her body that I would not want to be around. We've painted this picture that he looks at her. Oh my gosh, she's so beautiful. I must have her. That's not what's going on here. She has been in the field. Her hands are dirty. Her hands are hardened. She's been working with these other women there. She is sweating. 
The dress that she has on, I imagine it's probably the only dress that the girl has. And she's there and it's old. It's filthy. This is not love at first sight. But there was something about her that does catch his eye. You see, because he's heard the story about who she is. There's a picture, one of the pictures I found. Thought I'd show you that. Hey, Ruth. How you doing? You're really pretty. You want to come hang out with me today? Where, where have we gone wrong in this story? And then, all right, then now look at this. Watch this part. Watch this part. All right. Then 267. So the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered and said, It is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Everybody knows the story. Get that? Everybody has heard about the young Moabitess who has traveled back with her mother-in-law. She doesn't have to do that. Everybody, they don't understand why somebody from Moabite would come to Bethlehem. They worship Chemosh. We worship Yahweh. Why would she come back? Everybody knows and everybody respects this young woman who is giving up everything and is sacrificing her life. If you remember from, remember from last week, she's sacrificing her life for the sake of Naomi. So she comes back. And then look at this. This is great. This is great. I'm not even reading the rest of that text. It's too late. Then Boaz said to Ruth, You will listen, my daughter, will you not? Do not go to glean another, in another field, nor go from here, but stay close by my young women. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Have I not commanded the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Put the brakes on. Here's what I see in that scene, right? Here's Boaz. And he's gathering the boys. Hey, Zeke. Zeke's the leader. I don't know. Ezekiel. Come here, Zeke. Gather the boys. Boys, there's a new woman in town. Her name's Ruth. If any of you touch her, you lay a finger on her, I have a big field here. Nobody will ever find your body. <laughs> I'm Old Testament, boys. <laughs> you are not to touch her. Can't you see that? Imagine these guys that work for him and they're like, what? We can't go near. Who is this? She's a foreigner. We heard the story, but Bo. We know, you know, you know a lot, but isn't this kind of weird? Isn't this kind of crazy? No, no, no. He's laying down the first sexual harassment policy in the Bible. He's laying it down clear. And he tells her, you're not to go over to Shalom Acres. You're to stay right here. You are to stay on Bo's property. This is how I read the text. I don't preach this way all the time, but it's fun sometimes. I'm having fun today. So he tells her, you're supposed to stay here. And he has that meeting with them. And understand this, see this too. In that culture, women served men. Look what the text says. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink from what the young men have drawn. Again, the young men. What? Isn't she supposed to be the one that goes and gets the vessels for us? Isn't she supposed to be the one that draws for us? Hey, boss, we're working really hard. We're in the front. I have the sickle. She's behind. She's gleaning. Are you kidding me? Don't get the wrong impression again. I have to stop you. I have to keep reminding you. This is not about physical attraction. He has heard her story. He is impressed with her character. How she has treated her mother-in-law and she wants to reciprocate. Not reciprocate, but she wants to give back to her. And you're going to see at the very end why she does that. 
part of the story they don't talk about here, but it's so good. You want to know right now? No, I'm not going to tell you. You're going to have to wait. And I see a woman, we'll go to verse 10. And then in verse 10, it says, so she fell on her face. That was custom, ancient Eastern custom, nothing out of the ordinary there. Bowed down to the ground and said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? How many of you are married, men? How many of you are married? Come on, raise your hands. Before you were married, or if you're not married right now, I'm going to venture to guess. I'm good. I'm really, I'm going to, I'm going to surprise you right now. I would venture to guess that you did not have a list with these requirements. Homeless, poor, destitute, right? No money, dirty, filthy, pitted out. Are those some of the things that you had on your list for a wife? Come on, tell me, is that what you were looking for? No. Do you, do you also see what, the, what I've told you already? That this man, they're on opposite ends of the socioeconomic ladder. He would ruin, he would tarnish his reputation, his family's reputation, if he ever got together with somebody outside of his social class. Everything you did in ancient Eastern culture was you married from another family to improve or strengthen your social and political connections within that society. This is a crazy story, friends, because there is a God who is at work behind the scenes, just like, again, he is at work in your life. And here is a woman. Let's get a little ahead. Here is a woman who is gleaning in a field, right? Here is Ruth. She is behind the male laborers and she's behind the female laborers. And she's trying to catch scraps, little drops of grain that she can have and take home with her after she's done at the end of the day. When God intended for her to one day own the whole field. Oh, friends, she is there satisfied with the little drop. Mm, The little drop, the little piece of grain. I take that too. I do get out of my way. I take that. How many of us, how many of us as Christians are satisfied with little drops from God. And God is saying, oh, I want to give you so much more. You are not a second-class citizen in my house. But that's how we're living. That's how many of us are living as Christians, that we're second-class citizens. You know, it may be for somebody else, or you know what, I'll get it from the pastors. I'll come to church. You feed me, feed me, feed me. I'll take what you have. But you know what? I'm not getting into the Bible on my own. Don't ask me to go read the Bible. I'm showing up at church for the two hours. That's good enough. No, you have to take charge of your spiritual life. And God has so much in store for you. Oh, geez. Why are we, why are we accepting the little that we get, the little that we have. God wants to give you so much more. I don't know what it is for you. What is it? Think about that for a second. What is it for you? Where are you acting as a second-class citizen? Get off the spiritual welfare system right now. Get off. Break free from it. And take charge of your life. A little, bit, a little bit more. Can I go a little bit ahead? Okay. Even if you didn't want me to, I am. And then 11 and 12. 
And Boaz answered and said to her, it has been fully reported to me. Talk about favor, right? How is it some, can you fit, can we understand favor sometimes? That word shows up twice. She says it twice. She doesn't get it. Why would this guy show favor to me? Why would he ever show favor to me? It doesn't make any sense. And sometimes in our lives, have you ever been shown favor and it didn't make any sense? Did you ever get a job and it didn't make any sense? Come on, how many of you have you been there before? It happens because that's the way God works sometimes. It's the favor factor. You can't explain it and don't try to explain it to the rest of the world. People that don't go here, they won't understand it. We don't understand it fully, but that's how God works. And reported all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband and how you have left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and have come to a people whom you did not know before. The Lord repay your work. Do you remember last week? There's that word again. It's, it's in a different form, but it's hased. Oh, may the Lord show you incredible kindness. May he show you incredible compassion because that's who he is. And Ruth understands it. She sees it. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings you have come for refuge. He is going, Bo is going so beyond the letter of the law. What does the law say? You have to keep corners of your field, the edges of your field. Those are for God has blessed you. It's his land. It's not your land. God has given you that land. The edge of the field is for the foreigner, the immigrant, it's for the widow, it's for the orphan. This guy is taking Ruth in and he is going to make her one of his workers. Notice he's not giving her a handout. She still has to work for what she gets. But he is pulling her inside, an alien, a stranger. He is taking her in. So I ask, I said before, there is a reason why I think this is really happening. You want to know why? Do you know who Boaz's mother is? Does anybody know who Boaz's mother just happens to be? Oh, Rahab. Some of you knew that. Good. If you don't know who Rahab is, there's a story in the Old Testament. Joshua with Jericho. This is wild. His mother is a prostitute. She is a harlot. She is an innkeeper. Joshua has sent two spies to spy out Jericho before the walls are going to come crumbling down. And she has an inn there. And these two spies come there and they stay with her. Once the king finds out that there are spies, Israelites there, he gets word to her and says, you better release those spies to us. We want to know where they are. She lies to the men, his soldiers, lies about, she says, you know what, they left and they went in that direction, but they're actually hiding in her place. They're still there. And later on, what happens is a conversation and she says to them, please, I ask, they make an oath to each other and she wants to save and spare her household. Well, as the story goes later on, when Joshua comes in, he says, you are to go in and you are to save the household of Rahab. There is a harlot, a prostitute under a starry sky who comes to know who God is. There is a woman under a Judean sky. Her name is Ruth, and it's the same exact thing. People that you would never think in a thousand years would come to know God. And I bring that up about Rahab because I see in this story a man that is showing compassion and love for somebody that is an outsider because I want to think when he was a kid that people whispered because Bethlehem was a small town and people probably whispered about who his mother was. And he was there and he heard the things day after day after day 
away as she was disparaged. And as he became an older man and he became a man of affluence and influence, he said, I will not let that happen to other women that are in my life. And he sees this woman who just happens to come on his field one day. And he says, wow, I can show mercy and grace to this woman just like God showed mercy and grace to my mom. That's what happens when you pay it forward and the ripples go on and on and on. He is an incredible man. We don't know. Is Rahab alive? You may be asking yourself. We don't know. Wouldn't it be pretty wild, though, if she was? And he comes home. Hey, Mom, I met this girl. You know, in some ways, she reminds me a lot of you. I didn't say it to you last week. I know there are kids in the room. Mold by culture, the women were pretty loose. Read between the lines. She's a lot like her mom. It's just another reason. These are two characters, friends. If you haven't seen it through the sermon, they're not attracted to each other physically yet. They're attracted to the character they see in the other person and the love they have for God. Do you have that kind of love in your heart? Do you? Because if you don't, it's okay. You can ask for it this morning. Lord, I want to be as tenacious as Ruth was. I want to be tenacious like that, that woman sojourner truth. I want that tenacity in my life. Lord, will you give it to me? Lord, give it to me. And then when she goes home, I promise, last thing. I don't usually teach, I promise, last thing. Look what happens. She gets, Boaz tells her, come sit down with me. Come sit down with the men. Another thing in Mideastern culture you didn't do. The women did not sit down. He serves her. Something you also didn't do in Middle Eastern culture. Everybody there is like, what is going on with Boaz? And then finally, look what happens. And when she, the last, uh, the last verse, 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Ooh, Ruth works pretty hard. She has a good work ethic. And beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an epaph of barley. Do you know how much that is? How many of you have a dog? You go to the store and you buy the biggest bag of dog food that is there. A 50-pound bag of dog food. Anybody? You with me? You know what I'm talking about? No. Okay. Imagine that you're at a store and you're looking for the biggest bag of dog food you can find. This was enough food to last two women a month. In one day, look how God has provided for these two women. Look where they started in the beginning of the story and look where they are now. God is up to something. And friends, if, if you feel as if it is really dark in your life and you don't know where he is, read this story. It's your story. It's my story. Lord, Lord, I thank you for this wonderful story. Lord, I thank you for the joy as the speaker to teach it. Lord, burn it in our hearts. Burn it in our minds. Lord, I thank you that just like Ruth, we were aliens. We were foreigners. Oh, as Spurgeon said, Lord, that Jesus Christ was our wonderful Boaz, our glorious Boaz. Lord, I thank you for what Jesus did. This story points to you. It points to what you did on that cross for us. Thank you for including us when you could have excluded us. Thank you for taking us. Thank you for taking the marginalized and the oppressed. Simple people like us that have fallen so far from your glory. You've taken us inside into your shelter and you protect us and you love us. Lord, I thank you that this story is not over. Lord, I thank you for that, and I look forward to, Lord, a couple of more weeks of sharing the story.
Thanks for listening to City on a Hill's podcast. For more resources, visit us at chccny.com.